You may get out your Bible or the red Bible in front of you in the pew and open to Isaiah chapter 44. The bulletin says we're going to begin at 12, uh, verse 12, but we're actually going to back up and start at verse 9. So Isaiah 44, beginning at verse 9, we'll read through verse 20. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They're ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit him nothing? He and his kind will be put to shame. Craftsmen are nothing but men. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and infamy. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in, in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and mark it, marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of a man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm, I see the fire. From the rest he makes an idol, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my God. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see, and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say. Half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat, and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? This is the word of the Lord. Well, hello everyone. It is good to be with each of you. Hope everyone's Christmas was a great time with friends and family, um, that it was a spiritual growth, or a time of spiritual growth, uh, reflecting on Christ's birth. Seems to me that December is too chaotic with the immensity of Christmas, and then uh, just a week later we have to deal with New Year's, you know, and reflect on the whole prior year and, and try to think of uh, the things that we should improve upon uh, for the next year. And so there's even more to digest there than on Christmas dinner. And what's odd about New Year's is that it doesn't actually mean anything, right? Like, all that has really happened is that, you know, our calendar ran out of pages or, you know, we couldn't flip it anymore. Uh, it's a completely man-made concept. Uh, but we will all, myself included, use January 1st uh, as a day to implement changes. I guess there's a sense of a fresh start 
uh, for all of us, and while we technically could do that any time, uh, we choose the new year to do so. And there's nothing wrong with that, uh, at least not necessarily. It is human nature to, uh, to do so because we all desire that blank slate that comes with the new year. When we look at scripture, we see God recognize this as well about mankind, and he works within that. God established many feasts and festivals throughout the year that he commanded his people to observe. You can look at Numbers 10.10, for example. On the day of your goodness or gladness also, and at your appointed feasts, and at the beginning of your months, you shall blow the trumpets over your burnt offerings and over your sacrifices of your peace offerings. They shall be a reminder of you before your God. I am the Lord your God. And in Exodus, we talked about how God first told Moses to ask Pharaoh to allow them to go celebrate the Lord uh, through a feast. And so God knows that uh, we are forgetful people. Uh, indeed, I think in many ways you could argue that in Scripture it is full of themes and repeated messages for that very reason, um, to remind us of these things. I think of the old hymn, one of my favorites, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Uh, in that hymn there's that line, That goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. I love those lines because they ring so true for me. It's a frequent uh, prayer of mine to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus. And so God uses things like Ebenezer stones and things like our calendars to remind us of himself and to call us to reflect on specific truths about him. For us, New Year's can be a good time for reflection on the ways in which we failed and help shift our focus to the ways we need to improve. I think the most obvious place for believers to start in evaluating the new year is to uproot the idols in our hearts. Uh, I find it likely that any and all sins that we commit are ultimately rooted in idolatry. Theoretically, then, if we took care of the idols in our hearts, uh, if we sought them out and destroyed them, we would sin less and uh, consequently live righteously for Christ. And that seems like a pretty big deal to me. So I figured idols would be a good place to start for uh, the, well, it's not technically New Year, but as we go into the New Year. By taking the proper precautions to make sure everything is where it should be in our hearts, uh, we can help eliminate any idols lurking underneath the surface. If you remember back in August when I was filling in for Pastor Eric, you might remember that I had a bunch of dishwasher illustrations. So I've got another one for you. Uh, and I still won't be touching the pure gold illustration of what the actual washing of dishes might represent. So just you wait for Good Friday, because I'm going to blow you all away. <laughs> Anyways, I had to replace our old dishwasher, and uh, wanting to save money on having it installed, I decided that uh, I would try to do it myself. I had never done anything like this before, so it was a pretty big undertaking for me. Uh, yeah, that was my first bad idea. Uh, so... <clears throat> You know, so I, I start doing this, and I'm, you know, extremely nervous about the electricity part of it, you know, because uh, I have to both unhook my dishwasher, which still has electricity flowing through it, uh, and then properly connect the other one, and, you know, am I going to shock myself? Am I actually going to be able to get it running? You know, all these things I'm worried about, uh, and so I was so, so focused on that, uh, and so, you know, it took me days, but eventually I, I got it going. I didn't shock myself, uh, which was great. Uh, and so, you know, but by the time that I had finally gotten it hooked up and everything, I was like ready to be done. And so I just kind of rushed it and, and put it back in the place. Uh, <clears throat> and so, you know, we start running it and, you know, about a week later, I noticed that my floorboards are a little uneven and then I noticed some water spots. Um, 
And then it was at that time that I remembered my friend who I was uh, calling uh, for help on this project and him reminding me to double check all the bolts and everything to make sure everything was tightened. And I remember then me saying, I've been working on this all day, I'm done. Uh, and so there was, there was my mistake. I had ignored it and uh, I, I didn't tighten the, the water line uh, properly. And so sure enough, it was just spilling out all over my floor. So I messed up big time. And all because of something so small. I mean, literally, I just had to tighten the screw, and my floors wouldn't be uneven now. Um, and so, you know, I had this bigger goal of the electricity, but I let these other things go unchecked, and it caused major damage to my floor. And I think, similarly, idols can do the same thing, right? I mean, we have this big goal in mind in that we neglect the little things in our lives, and they just cause ruin. So we're going to talk about idols, but first off, we should actually define what an idol is. Uh, in the Hebrew scriptures, an idol is a physical statue created by man uh, to serve as some sort of God worthy of their worship, like we read in today's passage. However, in the New Testament, this definition gets expanded a lot further. Ephesians 5.5 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We see Paul take the definition of a physical idol to a non-physical one claiming that covetousness is idolatry. Ultimately, what Paul is getting at is that anything that we end up serving that is not God becomes an idol. When we covet something, we are really saying that God has not provided uh, us with enough, and therefore we will seek outside things for our satisfaction and fulfillment. We say, okay, God, you know, my house isn't good enough, so I'm going to pursue avenues in which I can get more money so that I can get a better house. Surely I would be satisfied then, but only if my living situation changes. We say something like, all right, Lord, my marriage is just not what I thought it would be. Therefore, I'm going to seek ways in which I can satisfy those desires from outside the biblical means in which you have provided. Perhaps this is why we see such harshness uh, in the opening verses of our passage today. Because when we articulate out loud what these idols really are, we see the blatant blasphemy that we're uh, committing against our creator and provider. So let's look at our passage then, specifically verses 9 through 10. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth, they shall be terrified, they shall be put to shame together. Isaiah does not mince words about those who create idols, but it is also foundational in the way that we understand idols. For those who create them, they are considered nothing, because they have tried reducing God to something much smaller than what he is. And it says that the things they delight in do not profit. Another foundational truth about idols. Idols will not give you what you seek. Certainly not, at least, without destroying something else that you have. Idolatry charges a steep price, and yet all of us are so willing to and so eager to stand in line, uh, ready to sign up for this thing that can ruin us. So using the two prior examples that I gave, you know, we can say, go ahead and pursue a better home. In your pursuit of more cash flow to get that better home, you may sacrifice your friendships or your marriage or your family. You may no longer have family and friends to invite into this new home that you have. 
Go ahead and seek fulfillment outside of the marriage God bless you with. Again, you may lose your family and your friends, possibly your job for something like that. You may find yourself a slave to these desires in a way that you never thought possible. Idols are costly. And just to quickly reiterate, there is nothing inherently wrong with uh, needing a better house or wanting an awesome marriage. Shelter is a human need and marriage is intended to glorify God. These are good things. What really matters is our heart and the ways in which we pursue those things. And yet, looking further at the passage in verse 10 through 11, we see that often we work together in our building up of these idols. So someone has created an idol and we gather around it to worship it together. An example for today might be the successful CEO who climbed to the top, employing destructive methods and tactics, who tore down others in his pursuit to the top. And we look at that person and we say, wow, what a tough guy, you know, what a man, doing what he had to do to get to the top. In this example, this person has personal success as their goal, and it becomes an idol because they put everything else aside in their pursuit of it, including ethics and grace to reach that position. And people laud him for it. We are put to shame together, it says, and rightfully so. Verse 12 gives us more insight on the nature of idolatry and is the basis for today's title. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals, He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. Everything else in this man's life becomes secondary to his pursuit of this idol. He is willing to forego eating and drinking and sleeping. All of his time is consumed by this desire. Everything else can be sacrificed. For New Year's, many of us will set resolutions. When we think about what goals we want to accomplish... Have we considered the cost of those goals, though? Some resolutions, I contend, are better off going unreached. An important question we have to always be asking ourselves is, how will this affect my relationship with God or God's mission for me? Maybe you have a respectable goal, say, to learn a new skill or maybe a new language. There's certainly a lot to admire uh, about something like that, but that takes a lot of time. And if God has called you to invest your time in a certain person or uh, maybe as a mentorship or something, you know, is learning French or Japanese aiding you in your ability to do that? Maybe if they're French or Japanese, uh, but maybe not, you know. And, uh, and so that's something that we have to consider. Okay, is this uh, the right time and place for that? More importantly, is it taking you away from being able to be faithful to the call that God has put on your life? Now, there's a danger here that I want to quickly address, uh, and that is that there will always be time spent that could theoretically have been spent doing something more uh, for God, right? Uh, And so there are people who guilt themselves, you know, they watch one movie and they they just feel bad about it all week, you know, I could have been praying, I could have been reading my Bible, you know, Um, and so they they get all worked up over this. Uh, And I'll just quickly say don't, don't be guilty for things like that. Okay. Uh, enjoying the earth is something that God uh, intended and actually can play an important role in you being able to fulfill your role uh, here in life. Um, you know, self-care is an often neglected part of life, um, but if you expect to actually live for God, you're going to have to take care of yourself at some point. And so watching a movie or doing things that you enjoy, that is a healthy part of that. But enjoy those things and enjoy those things in God, right? And that's, yeah, that's an important part. 
for those of you who maybe watch, you know, a, a 10-season show in a, in a week, you know, maybe this is a, a good challenge for you to reevaluate uh, where your time is being spent. Back to the passage. With idols, they take time. It takes careful planning, a thorough mapping out of our path to reach our desired end. The passage says, the carpenter stretches a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass, he shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Idolatry, although subtle, is not something that just happens. We are methodical in our drive towards it. We know what we think we want, and we map out how to achieve that satisfaction for ourselves. But ultimately, it is a man-made path, and it will result in it only meeting our human standards, because we ourselves are human. This idol that the craftsman is working on, it is in his image, with his beauty, and it dwells in something that man dwells in. This idol falls far short of who God is and what he provides. We see that in a laughable manner in verses 15 through 17. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. We make these things to serve us, and they do temporarily. Notice he has to consume part of this idol to give himself warmth and bread. He has to consume another part to give him meat. Both times, he makes it into an, another idol to worship. We've already seen the craftsman plan everything for this idol. He made it. He selected the tree. He ensured it grew strong. He cut it down, and he makes use of it as he pleases. Who is the real God in this relationship? It's certainly not the idol. Yet we see the craftsman bow down and pray to it, and he cries out to it, asking for deliverance. This idol, like our own idols is completely incapable of doing anything for this man other than whatever human purpose he has already given it. In this case, it provides warmth and a means to cook food. Things, by the way, we were told earlier that he neglected to do in making the idol. Right? He's making this so that he can eat food, but it says that he was going hungry, he was uh, thirsty, and he, wouldn't, he wasn't taking care of those things. And yet, despite all that, he puts his hope in this thing. Uh, he... he puts his hope for deliverance in this idol that he has made for himself, this wooden idol. And we're supposed to see the ridiculousness in that story. But we need to be careful because the story is meant to be a mirror unto ourselves. Our idols may look different from back then, but they have the same effect. As we're thinking about New Year's resolutions, you know, a common one is to lose weight. And for what purpose do you seek that? Is it because you want to be a good steward of the body God gave you? Recognizing that his gift of mobility and energy are keys to living faithfully to the mission that he's called you to? Then that's great. 
Or is it because you want to be accepted by other people? Because you're tired of people looking at you a certain way. If that's it, you know, we have now fashioned for ourselves a way to gain that acceptance from others. Expecting it to deliver us into some sort of promised land. Saints, you already have that acceptance in Christ. Whatever your idol is, God has already promised satisfaction in him. His ways bring life, scripture says. Sin brings death. So what are we doing messing around with these inferior things? Now, I'm not saying that life isn't difficult, nor am I saying that it's wrong to want people to like you or to accept you. And in a sinless world, everyone recognizes the beauty and the value that you possess simply because you were made in the image of the Creator. But when we search for something to satisfy us that isn't God or the graces that he has bestowed upon us to serve that purpose, we labor in vain. We make idols that cannot serve us. We're grabbing something we've made and we expect it to be more powerful than ourselves. We deceive ourselves. As the passage says, They know not, nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on its coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Our idols are so subtle that we are often blind to them. And I think that's the biggest danger with New Year's resolutions. They can become a socially acceptable way in which we pursue our sinful desires. It goes back to the part of the passage where it says that they gather together worshiping this idol. Resolving uh, these issues, you know, we, we <clears throat> resolve to become better with money. Uh, and that may be spiritual, again, like I said, uh, you know, in a sense of being a good steward. Or... It might be the first step in the road to pursuing satisfaction in the things that your neighbors have. Or maybe gaining uh, social status by how much you give to a charity or an organization. Um, we have to evaluate these things because it's, it's good, right? I mean, it is good to be able to give. And yet, what are our motivations for that? <laughs> Tim Keller had a helpful chart uh, in identifying what our idols might be. Uh, I got this off of Facebook, although I believe it's from the, uh, his book, Counterfeit Gods. Uh, and they are a list of statements that state the idol and then explain how to achieve them. So I'm going to quote his list because I think it's great. And I'm always looking to quote people far smarter than myself. The baseline statement of idolatry is this. Okay? Life only has meaning or I only have worth if. Okay? So if you ever catch yourself saying that. Um, listen very carefully because you're probably about to discern for yourselves what your idol may be. Okay, so life only has meaning or I only have worth if I have power and influence over others. That's what Keller calls power idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I am loved and respected by blank. That's approval idolatry. I have this kind of pleasure experience or a particular quality of life. Comfort, idolatry. I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. Control, idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if people are dependent on me and need me. Helping, idolatry. 
Someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. Dependence idolatry. I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. Independence idolatry. Life only has meaning or I only have worth if I am highly productive and getting a lot done. Work idolatry. I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I am excelling in my work. Achievement idolatry. I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Materialism idolatry. I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. Religion idolatry. That's one that many of us maybe don't think of. But you can read the book of Jonah to see exactly that in action. This one person is in my life and happy to be there and or happy with me. Individual person idolatry. I feel I am totally independent of organized religion and am living by a self-made morality. Irreligion idolatry. My race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. Racial or cultural idolatry. A particular social grouping or professional grouping or other group lets me in. Inner ring idolatry. My children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. Family idolatry. Mr. or Miss Wright is in love with me. Relationship idolatry. I am hurting. In a problem, only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. Suffering idolatry. My political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power. Ideology idolatry. Or lastly, I have a particular kind of look or body image. Image idolatry. Now notice that uh, a lot of those are fine in of themselves. Right? Religion is good. I mean, we are here at church worshiping God. Uh, That is good. Family is good. But when we become like the woodsmen... We end up putting off eating or drinking, fixated on certain things, uh, and, and fixated on making them happen no matter what. And when we do that, we are likely committing idolatry. And we think that these idols are our friends. We made them, after all, and we're using them to serve our desires, but that friend is no friend at all. In our pursuit of these idols, we become as horses, As Jeremiah 8.6 says, everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. The horses are just excited about running, but they don't know what lies ahead, right? They don't know that they're about to enter a battlefield, and they don't understand the serious danger that they are now in. They get caught up in the moment, and they allow themselves to be ruined. So, sorry for being a total buzzkill about New Year's resolutions. Uh, (laughs) Some of you probably had big plans. Uh, And again, I I just want to say, it is not necessarily wrong, right, to have a New Year's resolution. But like anything, we want to be evaluating our heart and and asking ourselves, okay, is is my pursuit of this, is this good? Is this going to aid me in my relationship with God? Is this going to aid me uh, in God's calling in my life? We have to be intentional in asking ourselves what God wants from us. God is the only one who can satisfy us. So let's put away our friends with imaginary powers and start trusting in him to be everything we need.